September 3rd, 1971, Los Angeles. There's a break-in at the office of a psychiatrist, Dr. Lewis Fielding. The burglars use a crowbar to jimmy open a file cabinet. They're looking for the records of a man the White House had called the most dangerous man in America, Daniel Ellsberg. He's our guest today on Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just Russia no is a it? ruse. I'm Michael Isikov, Yahoo News chief investigative correspondent. And I'm Daniel Clydman, editor-in-chief of Yahoo News. So, Mike, uh, Dan Ellsberg is having a bit of a moment. At 86, he's kind of a rock star right now, probably the most iconic whistleblower in American history. He's, of course, the man who leaked the Pentagon Papers exposing the American government's lies about the Vietnam War and is the subject of a new Oscar-contending movie, The Post, starring Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks. And it's a story uh, that has enormous relevance right now. It's about how a whistleblower who provided the ammunition to newspapers to stand up to a powerful autocratic president who threatened and hated the press. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? You know, it sure does. I saw the movie the other day, and as an old newspaper guy, I loved it. it some of it was, like, right out of the front page. Uh, but, the, you know, the stuff that grabbed me the most were those clips of Richard Nixon ranting and raving about Ellsberg and the press. It's impossible to listen to those without thinking of our current president, Donald Trump, and his own fits of rage. Um, you know, uh, we've got uh, some of those clips. Uh, here's uh, Nixon on Ellsberg. I just say that we've got to keep our eye on the main ball. The main ball's Ellsberg. we got to get this son of a bitch. Uh, you know, and there's another clip uh, from the movie I just loved uh, where Nixon is going ballistic about the Washington Post. I want it clearly understood that from now on, ever, no reporter from the Washington Post is ever to be in the White House. Is that clear? Absolutely. It, unless it's a press conference. Yes, sir. In now, the briefings here, but uh, on a briefing. But never, never in the White House. No church service. Nothing with Mrs. Nixon does. You tell Connie, don't tell Mrs. Nixon because she'll approve it. No reporter from the Washington Post is ever to be in the White House again, and no photographer either. Mm-hmm. No photographer. Is that clear? Yes, sir. None ever to be in. Now that is a total order, and the, and if if necessary, I'll fire you. You understand? I I do understand. Okay. God, those, those clips are they, – they just never get old. They are so compelling. And, you know, it's funny. The main difference in some ways is, you know, that we now have a president who feels he can rant and rave about the press with impunity in full view of the American public on Twitter. Uh, yeah, but, you know, look, uh, you go back and you look at the history and um, it was – pretty significant. Uh, I don't think people fully appreciate Ellsberg's role because Nixon was so incensed about the leaks from Ellsberg to the New York Times and the Washington Post that he created a special unit called the Plumbers to go after the leakers. 
Ellsberg was first and foremost, and their job was to discredit Ellsberg, a mission that led them to that burglary I, we were just talking about at Dr. Fielding's office. The same characters who committed that break-in, Howard Hunt, G. Gordon Liddy, pop back up a year later, breaking into the DNC headquarters at the Watergate. So in that sense, Daniel Ellsberg's leaks to the press started the White House down the road that led to the resignation of Richard Nixon. It's sort of a cautionary tale of what can happen when a, pre when a president gets too worked up about press criticism. Yeah, and it's, it's, it is um, important to remember that so much of the story back then um, and how it unfolded was about the relationship uh, uh, between um, the press um, and, uh, and, and the administration, but also the press and whistleblowers and how they were able to work together uh, to, uh, to, to make a difference and to change history. Um, and, you know, if it were not for uh, a guy like Ellsberg, who had principles, a willingness to act, a willingness to take personal risk, uh, and um, a, an ability to work um, with an aggressive press, um, you know, uh, history would have changed. What he was able to do was really in some ways by leaking the Pentagon Papers, uh, turn the tide of the Vietnam War. So it's it's pretty consequential. Um, um, and, you know, we're going to... Yeah, you know. I was going to say, but, you know, there's another reason we got Ellsberg here today because uh, he's also got a, uh, a, a new book out, The Doomsday Ma Machine, in which he argues that as much uh, nuclear peril, we're, we're in as much nuclear peril today uh, as we were back during the height of the Cold War. And he's got some pretty... Um, uh, pretty fascinating stories uh, to tell. And it's about also that. about his conversion. It's about how he went from, you know, a, uh, a cold warrior um, who was kind of part of uh, the, uh, the, the kind of quiet bureaucracy that was gripped by this kind of nuclear madness to become one of the staunchest opponents of nuclear weapons. Um, and that, it's kind of a, a fascinating personal story. So he'll talk about that in the context of his new book. Uh, but before we get to that, um, this is uh, our weekly uh, review of uh, Russia and other scandals in the news in the Trump era. And we've had quite a... Um, uh, quite a bit of a, uh, a news week on that. Uh, Steve Bannon, uh, the president's former campaign strategist uh, and uh, top advisor in the White House, uh, gets uh, hauled before the House Intelligence Committee. Uh, doesn't tell him much because he, uh, the White House invokes executive privilege, but now, then he earned himself a subpoena from Robert Mueller. He is going to be talking to Mueller. And, um, Which is the most, the more significant piece of this. I just got to say, it's funny because uh, earlier this week, um, I saw that Axios had called um, Steve Bannon the most dangerous man in Trump world. <laughs> so we're going from the most dangerous yeah. man in Trump world, and soon we'll be interviewing the most dangerous man in America. Well, we'll, um, we'll ask Ellsberg how he appreciates the comparison <laughs> to Steve Bannon. <laughs> well, you know, so the, the question about... Um, the thing about Bannon is how dangerous is he? I mean, this is a guy who obviously played a central role uh, in the campaign, was there during the entire transition, was there for uh, six months, uh, the first six months of the presidency, had walk-in privileges uh, in the Oval Office, which means that he had, you know, dozens and dozens of, you know, one-on-one -on -one conversations with the president. Does he represent a threat? You know, I, from everything I know about Bannon uh, and um, uh, where his head is at, um, he's not ready, I don't think, to make a 
full break from uh, Donald Trump, even though Trump fired him. But he clearly and, and humiliated him on Twitter, uh, right? And right. called him, you know, sloppy Steve. Sure, sure. But he's got a constituency. Um, he, you know, he he wants to have a future. He knows that his future in the hands of people like the Mercers and others who uh, are still in Trump's camp. So I don't think he's going to give testimony that's going to be directly harmful to Trump himself. But but there's no question he's got a lot of animus uh, towards uh, Jared Kushner and Ivanka and some of the others around the president. So if he's got damaging information, I think he's going to – that's where it's going to be. And, of course, he did – tell um, Michael Wolff, the author of that uh, blockbuster book, uh, Fire and Fury, uh, that he thinks where Mueller, where this investigation is going to end up is money laundering. Right. I'm not exactly sure if that's a reference to Paul Manafort or if that has to do with Trump's finances, but that suggests that yeah. he's got a theory uh, of the case here. Yeah, well, the question is, is it a theory or does he know something? Um, and um, I think the jury's still out on well, that. But just one last question on this, uh, Mike, yeah. and then we'll move on to the next um, controversy. Um, what does this say about where Mueller is? The fact that he's issuing subpoenas, uh, grand jury subpoenas, uh, does this suggest that things are wrapping up or the opposite, that it's hard. It's hard to see how it's wrapping up. You know, look, Ty Cobb, the president's uh, in-house White House lawyer, was uh, on a podcast the other day saying that the, it, Mueller's going to wrap up in four to six weeks. But this is the same guy who said Mueller was going to wrap up in, by Thanksgiving, and then he was going to wrap up by Christmas, and then he was going to wrap up by the uh, by January. Uh, so I don't know that um, I don't know that we're there that there yet. Look, I mean. You know, and I know, because we've been covering these things for decades now, these investigations go on for quite some time. Uh, you know, every time you turn over a rock, you, you get new leads. Um, the mere fact that they're bringing in Bannon um, is a suggestion to me is that they're, you know, there are whole other avenues that they haven't explored yet and they may start exploring after they talk to Biden. I agree. I agree. Right. It's going on for a long time. Right. Uh, so meanwhile, uh, during the, the, the 20th anniversary week of the Bill Clinton-Monica Lewinsky scandal, there's a new Trump controversy that actually seems pretty reminiscent of the political sex scandals <laughs> of the 90s. Uh, yeah. Wall Street Journal reported that Trump in 2006, after having, I think, recently married uh, Melania, had a one-year affair with a porn performer. I've been told not to call her a por- porn star because not all – Porn performers are porn stars, apparently, but also an actress who went by the name Stormy Daniels. You can't make this stuff up. And the allegation is that Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, paid her $130,000 for her silence. It's important to note that this is described as a consensual affair and denied by the president, but consensual as opposed to harassment. But still, Mike, doesn't that remind you um, uh, of – you know, something else, some some other former president's sure. play, playbook. 20 years ago this week, uh, you know, Ken Starr launched his investigation of Bill Clinton uh, because of suspicions that he was trying to um, influence uh, what Monica Lewinsky might have 
happened to say by getting her a job. That was the core uh, obstruction issue. Now, of course, there was a legal process. In in this case, uh, these were in the closing weeks of the election. It was October of 2016. The Access Hollywood tape had just come out, had just come out, and there was uh, uh, clearly concern uh, on the Trump camp's part uh, that another woman coming forward talking about a sexual relationship um, would not be helpful to the president. And that's when um, uh, this uh, this payment um, allegedly went down. Now, you know, what leapt out at me is Michael Cohen, the president's lawyer, comes out and adamantly denies, says the president denies the relationship and Stormy Daniels has denied the relationship. He did not deny that the payment was made to Stormy Daniels. And um, that, um, you know, uh, raises a whole host of questions because that was the story. The story was $130,000 payment. Cohen didn't deny it. Okay, last point on this. Um, If you wanted to connect this back to the Russia scandal, let's remember that uh, the the dossier, the famous dossier, right. uh, which uh, has allegations in it ab- about Trump in Moscow consorting with prostitutes, um, of course denied, but uh, that it was it was that kind of information that led uh, Christopher Steele, a former British spy who put together the dossier, to go to the FBI because he was concerned uh, that President, soon to be President Trump. Uh, would be, you know, uh, vulnerable to blackmail by exactly. the by the Russians. Exactly. So, uh, the question here is, if the president has lots of these kinds of stories and he's paying off people for their right. silence, is he also? vulnerable to blackmail. Now, it may be vulnerable to Stormy Daniels as opposed to the Russians, <laughs> which is a whole different kettle of fish. Right, but right. Yeah, no, no, it's funny because, you know, one of the comebacks from, from people in the Trump camp uh, about the dossier allegations is, well, why would the president have cared even if there was a tape of him con- uh, consorting with prostitutes in a Moscow hotel room? He wouldn't have cared. You know, but he obviously cared about what Stormy Daniels might have to say. So, um, uh, I, you know, this may undermine a bit um, I, one of the the, uh, the pushbacks from the Trump camp. But clearly there's uh, uh, lots more to learn on both uh, fronts. But let's get to our guest, um, our esteemed guest, Daniel Ellsberg. Welcome to Skullduggery. Um, hey, you know, uh, you're getting a lot of attention uh, these days because of the, uh, of the movie The Post. Uh, what'd you think? Well, it's a good movie and very, obviously very timely. You know, it's timely in several ways. Uh, I understand that the the script was essentially first sold before the election on the assumption that it was a feminist movie about Catherine Graham, and then of course, of course, in the course of the year, uh, it looked more like a freedom of the press movement, with um, uh, Trump playing the role of Nixon, who called the en- press the enemy, and Trump does too. But by the end of the year, I actually think the takeaway is going to be mainly Catherine Graham's role as a woman who speaks out. And more than ironically, of course, she's the one who spoke out to Trump, and Trump actually uh, went after her in his tweets. So, <laughs> well, Trump goes after a lot of people in his tweets. We're so. going to get into that in yeah, a second. Yeah. But hey, I, just one general question. How faithful was it to actual events? Was it, was it true history? Look, I only know, of course, the part, the small part right at the beginning that I was involved in. I knew nothing about what went on in the post I'm a little skeptical about some of those scenes, but I don't really know. 
Uh, I was happy to be played by a terrific actor who looks very much the way I did at that time, only better. I can't do better than that. That's well, I don't, know, I don't know about that. You know, there, actually, there was a scene. Uh, it's Dan Clydman, uh, Mr. Ellsberg. There was a scene... Um, uh, when you are flying back, uh, you're yes, Pentagon uh, aide. You're flying back with McNamara from Vietnam, right. um, and yeah, tell because because he, you he basically asks for your opinion on whether this war is winnable, and you tell him. That, you, go ahead. Was, uh, that scene was word for word exact. It, it came from my book Secrets, a memoir of Vietnam in the Pentagon Papers, back in 2002, and they took just took the scene exactly. And uh, I must say that. Uh, Matthew Reese did a good job of expressing what I was thinking just in his face, and that's what an actor is. He didn't have to say anything. But uh, when I described that event to my later wife, Patricia, my wife of the last 47 years here, but at the time we weren't married, and I, uh, I told her about the event and how McNamara had said uh, literally minutes less than five minutes, a few minutes earlier, because the plane came down very fast into Andrews. And he had just finished saying, uh, when I said, my impression is that it's about the same. Or my, my feet, I'm more impressed by the fact of how much the same it is this year rather than last year. And he proceeded to say, you see, that proves my point. We've put another 100,000 people in there, another 100,000 troops, and it's no better than it was before. That means it's actually worse, which is what he'd said earlier. And they cut out from my book uh, my response to that, which was, well, that's an interesting thought. Yes, you could see it that way. And then, then the voice came on, gentlemen, take your seats. We're coming down into Andrews. I go back and strap myself in. Minutes later, I'm coming down the gangway, actually. And when they made the movie Most Dangerous Man in America, the documentary, they actually, having looked at my book, found the film script where I'm coming down the uh, gangplank as McNamara is saying to the press in every way and by every dimension we can measure there's more progress than ever before I'm very optimistic and uh, I go off I don't know whether I look the way Matthew Reese does in the movie but what I said to Patricia was having told her this story I hope I'm never in a position where I have to lie like that. And that, and that is essentially, if you had to boil it down, why you leaked the Pentagon Papers. Because U.S. official after U.S. official and American president after American president lied about how we were doing in Vietnam, said we were winning, uh, continued to send thousands and thousands of young men into battle to die, even though they knew that we were losing that war. Well, I'd have to take some issue with that because it's often said that what caused me to, to give the Pentagon Papers was the lying, and that's implied in the book. They show all the lying and they show me copying the papers as if I was very disturbed about lying. Now, I've often said, if you can't stand lying by government officials, you can't be in the government today. And I was in the government about <laughs> right. So I lived with that for years. Uh, that was... It was very blatant. I, I'd rarely seen it happen in minutes where, you know, uh, a, uh, a cabinet official is contradicting what he's just said to me literally minutes later to the press. That was an, a unique case. But in terms of lying, it had been going on for years. And th that was really in 1966 when that occurred, October 66. Hmm. I copied the Pentagon Papers 
in October of 69, three years later. So I can't take credit for having a, uh, a moment then of conversion at that point in 66. I stayed on in Vietnam till I got hepatitis. And then I came back because I couldn't be in the field anymore, even though I was disillusioned with the war, as was McNamara. And he stayed with it till he was fired. The Pentagon Papers didn't come out till 71, four years uh, later after that scene. So as I'm saying to people right now who know that the real prospects of war in North Korea, with North Korea, which are horrible, and I am sure there are estimates of terrible consequences. Yeah. And we're going to get to that in your, when, we, when we get to the discussion of your book. But I want to talk about uh, some parallels uh, with our current president. And yeah. one of the hallmarks of Trump's presidency is his attacks on the press. Uh, he just gave out his so-called fake news awards. He takes to Twitter almost every day. Oh, I didn't uh, see did yeah, you the fake news awards. Are you on the honors list? <laughs> no, we're, no, we're a little we're, disappointed yeah. that we didn't make the cut. Maybe Crushing blow. Maybe next year. But, uh, but you know, he, he, he attacks, you know, news organizations and individual reporters on a regular basis. He's talking about loosening the libel laws. Yeah. How much does that remind you of, of Richard Nixon? And do you think um, he's as dangerous as Nixon in terms of, you know, the way he goes after, after the press and tries to, to delegitimize uh, legitimate reporting? I think he's going to build on the terrible precedent of Barack Obama, who prosecuted three times as many people altogether as all presidents put together before him. I was the first person ever prosecuted for a leak that was under Nixon. And, you know, no one had ever been prosecuted before under the Espionage Act for a leak. It wasn't meant for that. And most lawyers in the government felt that wasn't constitutional to use it. And I would say they were right at that time. Of course, what's constitutional depends on the Supreme Court in the end. They've never addressed that question, and I wouldn't want to rely on the current Supreme Court. But then uh, they were they were uh, trying a new experiment of uh, prosecuting a source. All right, two other people were prosecuted before Obama. Obama prosecuted nine altogether. Now, I think that Sessions has been berated by Trump for not indicting many people yet. I think only a reality winner so far. He says he has 27 uh, investigations going on. It would be three times as many as Obama. And uh, uh, I think, according to the ACLU, he, Trump is almost sure to go directly after journalists like yourself, to indict journalists and editors and publishers. Uh, he'd love to do it first, just to put his toe in the water with Julian Assange, but he can't get him out of the Ecuadorian embassy there. Uh, there. There may well be a hidden indictment on Assange already, but he wants to take advantage of the fact that some journalists like Bill Keller are willing to say, well, I'm not sure that Assange is really a journalist. I don't recognize him. And it would be a good test case. But even if he can't get him, he'll go after real journalists, the way Obama pretty much pursued James Risen. Let's, uh, 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 let's talk about Assange a little bit, because you were a big uh, defender of Assange. You flew over to London uh, uh, and appeared at a press conference with him. 
But, um, you know, when you and I talked a few weeks ago, you had some real reservations about Assange's role in the uh, 2016 election when he started dumping all the documents uh, about uh, from the DNC and then the John Podesta emails that were clearly harmful to Hillary Clinton's campaign. Um, how do you feel about Assange today and what he did during last year's uh, or the 2016 election? Julian is very human, and he has a lot of human reason uh, as a hunted person who's been in one room for almost five years or maybe more than five years now to feel very bitter toward Hillary Clinton, who was uh, State Department, uh, head of the State Department when he did those releases earlier, which I thought the, uh, the earlier uh, releases were absolutely uh, journalistic and should have been issued. Hillary Clinton uh, treated him, thought of him as a traitor. She she didn't dissent from the people who thought he should be droned or shot. That's a question whether she actually ever said that or not, but she probably thought it. And so he had reason to be very angry at her. That should not have been enough reason to help Trump get elected, I would say, in this campaign. I think that was very costly. In effect, uh, the Russians had good reason to prefer Hillary to uh, to prefer Trump to Hillary uh, for compar comparable reasons, and there are reasons of state. I'd like to just stick to Assange for a moment. First of all, the, the, the U.S. government has said he was a conduit for the Russians in, uh, in dumping those documents. Do you accept that? It's very plausible, but I've seen no actual evidence. Yes, they could have provided those emails, and I would guess they probably did. But I wanted to be clear, it'd be nice to deal with evidence-based reality here a little bit. We haven't seen any actual evidence that the Russians gave that to uh, Assange. So ju just to be, well, certainly the intelligence community is absolutely convinced of that. They are absolutely convinced that the, that the, that the Russians hacked the DNC and Podesta emails. So if they had them and Assange publishes them, um, it, it's likely there must have been some connection there. But how disappointed are you in what Assange did in the 2016 election? And di didn't you at some point, uh, you know, you were invited to some 10th anniversary, WikiLeaks anniversary, and you didn't want to go or participate because of uh, what, what he was doing in the election? I, I felt that I was being asked at that particular day to endorse some more releases, which he said he was about to put out that day. And I didn't want to appear to be part of that process. But when you ask about my personal feelings, the truth is, as a person, I cut Julian Assange a good deal of slack in terms of judging him or evaluating him as a person or a friend, because he really has been in one room too long. I don't know what I'd be like in terms of judgment and uh, uh, vindictiveness or whatever. I'll tell you who really disappointed me, and I've never said this publicly, uh, and I'll lose some friends when I say it, but I'm 86 and I'm prepared to, I'm just going to say what I think. I am and was disappointed in a lot of my friends who were so down on Hillary, and I agree with their criticisms of Hillary, with every criticism from the left I've ever heard, but they were so critical that they couldn't bring themselves to acknowledge that Trump would be even worse, and the Republican would be worse. And they either voted for Jill Stein or they encouraged people not to vote at all for Hillary. And I think uh, what we had in the summer of 16, with the help of Assange and the help of Russians and the help of Comey and everything else, was a situation where if enough people 
didn't bring themselves Democrats or progressives, couldn't bring themselves to vote for Hillary, we were going to get Trump. And that's what happened. And did and and Dan, did you uh, uh, did you vote for Hillary Clinton for president? I live in California, not a swing state, so I didn't have to. I voted. I wrote in Bernie Sanders, actually. But I told everybody in every audience I was, if you're in a swing state, not only vote for Hillary, vote against Trump by voting for Hillary, not for Jill Stein and not by not voting, and campaign for and get people to the polls. So we want to get to the doomsday machine, your book. Uh, but I want to just ask you one more question about about uh, another whistleblower um, who you have supported um, uh, steadfastly, and that's Edwards, uh, and, and that's uh, Snowden, Ed Sno- Edward Snowden. And I actually want to start, I want to read a quote back to you that I think you said publicly around the times of, time of the Pentagon Papers prosecution, which was, I am prepared to answer all the consequences of these decisions. And you yeah. were prepared. And, and indeed, you were expecting to go to prison. You were facing, I think, something like 125 years in prison. 115. Let's 115. Say. All right. <laughs> let's not get carried away. Uh, Snowden... Um, you know, has not uh, uh, faced the consequences of, of his actions. He's being harbored in Moscow by, by Vladimir Putin. Um, I know you've been supportive of him, uh, but, uh, but, but does, that, does, does that gnaw at you? Does that bother you at all? Or do you think he's completely justified in not um, uh, coming and in, in, in facing the consequences of his actions? The latter, I think he's a great patriot. I admire him unreservedly, both what he did then and everything he said since. I haven't seen anything that I disagreed with or that I felt was not a contribution. He could not have been saying any of that, which he has been for the last, gee, it's uh, almost five years now. That was 2013 that it came out. He's been speaking constantly uh, to very good effect, which he could not do if he were in prison, which, and he would be in prison for the moment he set back in this country. Second, right at the very beginning, uh, his contribution was to reveal uh, uh, an enormous raft of criminality by the government, unconstitutional and illegal criminal behavior by hundreds and thousands of people, including his colleagues and going up to the president in terms of violations of the Fourth Amendment and a a number of laws, illegal surveillance. But... That material didn't explain itself the way the Pentagon Papers did. The Pentagon Papers was a story, a narrative. You could read it. I didn't have to say anything about it. In fact, I just said to people, read it. Don't listen to me. Read it. That was a mistake, actually. They didn't read it, and I should have uh, I should have spent more time going over it myself. But I didn't have to. He could have just put it on the web anonymously. But he wanted to be able to explain to journalists like Gwen Greenwald, who was not an expert in these uh, matters, and many others, what the acronyms meant, what this all meant. But he wanted them to have that for background to see the whole context of how they was doing so they would be read into the system. And it doesn't give you pause that he's there under the protection of Vladimir Putin, the very guy who launched the assault on American democracy to defeat Hillary Clinton and put Donald Trump in in the uh, Oval Office. I don't know, but I would guess... He's quite unhappy about that situation, but he's made no secret of the fact that he would rather be out of Russia. The trouble is that he could come back to the United States at any time. Yes, he could come back and we would never hear from him again. He would be like the way that Chelsea Manning was in solitary confinement for 10 and a half months until public protests got her into the general population. 
he would be in solitary confinement for the rest of his life. Hey, let's talk about uh, The Doomsday Machine, a great book. Uh, um, and there's some really fascinating stories in there. One, which I didn't know, uh, which is that everybody associates you with uh, 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 the Pentagon Papers. and uh, um, But you also had taken with you uh, thousands of documents having nothing to do with the Vietnam War um, about America's nuclear uh, secrets. And um, uh, what happened to them is quite extraordinary. Why don't you tell us uh, what happened after you gave these documents to your brother? Well, I intended to put them out after the Pentagon Papers had had whatever effect it might have in waking people up on the Vietnam War and getting them to vote against the appropriations, which they eventually did in the course of Watergate uh, years later, but not at the time. Uh, the Pentagon Papers at the time affected no votes for the Hatfield-McGovern bill, which was for cutting off the money. That was very disappointing. I would have hoped for that. In fact, Nixon was uh, fearful that it would have that effect, but it didn't. When that would be over, and when the war was over in 75, finally, uh, it was my intention to put out this other material, which I was sure would put me in prison. There would be no escaping. It was a, it was a miracle that I wasn't and it didn't end up in prison for the Pentagon Papers it was, and not unconnected to this whole series of events. But having experienced that miracle, and I was figuring even if I was in prison, I would get these other documents out and that would keep me in prison forever for sure. But during that time, my brother buried these documents when he knew the FBI was hunting for me. Uh, buried them in a trash dump in Terrytown, New York, and uh, under actually a large green stove, an abandoned stove that would mark where he'd put them in, the, in a bluff on the side of a road, buried them. Hurricane Doria, Tropical Storm Doria came through, scattered the stove by more than 100 yards, and the bluff was scattered down the hillside. And for the next year and a half, he and a woman named Barbara Denyer and her daughter, and at first her husband, would go every weekend to try to dig through that dump. So let me get this straight. Thousands of top secret American uh, uh, government documents about our nuclear secrets are buried in a trash dump in Hastings on the Hudson in New York, and you can't find them. They are lost to history or maybe still somewhere there, like some pirate treasure that has not been uncovered um, uh, in uh, in this trash dump. Well, we could make a movie about that, but my brother actually um, said that eventually, the reason he gave up was that they came and used most of that dump for fill for a condominium nearby. And they were pouring concrete over the foundation. So he said, we'll have to use dynamite to get at it now. (laughs) So, uh, Dan, a a really, I think, compelling uh, human dimension of this book is, you know, how you went from being a a Cold War theoretician, um, you know, all these policymakers in the government um, who were kind of seized by a kind of madness uh, in that time, and how you went from that to becoming a whistleblower uh, who wanted to expose these documents and our nuclear policies. So how did that transformation take place? Was there, was there an, aha, an aha moment, or, or was it a slow evolution? Describe that process. Well, I learned very early that whatever the actual status of the Soviet Union was, 
our plans for war with the Soviet Union were insane and immoral any way you looked at it. I did fear uh, at the Rand Corporation that we were facing a Hitler-like regime, which was true in domestic terms, in tyrannical terms, but a Hitler-like regime in the sense of being expansionistic and aggressive, that was enormously exaggerated, and a regime with nuclear weapons, which it did have, but not nearly as many as we imagined from Air Force estimates. I had discovered this insanity, the fact that delegation had been made to many people in the field. It was not only President Eisenhower or Kennedy's fingers on a metaphorical button or an ability to launch weapons. It was dozens or scores of people, it was even hard to say how many, who could actually, even with authorization, under some circumstances, launch weapons. That was dangerous. But what I discovered was that the Joint Chiefs estimated in 61 that if we carried out their plans, we would kill 600 million people, 100 holocausts. Well, that was dizzyingly insane. And yet it was done by people who weren't monsters. I knew them very well. I had drank beer with them in the evening. I had dinner with perfectly ordinary colonels and majors who were making these plans. And they had inherited them from others. Uh, the numbers went up from scores of millions to hundreds when atom bombs were replaced in the planes by thermonuclear weapons that use the atom bombs for triggers. So that's the situation we've been in for over half a century, living in a world where everyone in the world is hostage to a situation such as just happened in Hawaii. What was your, what was your reaction when you heard about what happened in Hawaii? Well, it was a replay, really, of what has happened a number of times before, but on a much more dangerous uh, in the other times, a much more dangerous level. So we're in a situation right now where we have a president who tweets about the dictator of North Korea in belittling terms, calls him rocket man, talks about how his nuclear button is bigger is bigger than the than rocket man's uh, nuclear button. How dangerous is this uh, in your view? And, and is it bringing us closer to the kind of nuclear holocaust you're warning about? Yes and no. It is bringing us certainly closer very quickly to an awareness of the dangers in our situation. In a way, that's a good thing. It'll attract people's attention to the fact that these dangers have been there all along. He's not the first to threaten nuclear weapons. Um, he's one of the first to do it so openly and blatantly, but others have done it secretly from the American people, not from the people they were threatening, obviously. In fact, this is true in so many dimensions. He's not the first racist. He's not the first sexist. It's just that Nixon did it in private on his tapes. That's how we know about it. Clinton did it in private till till it was uh, it became revealed was sexist. And um, his difference is that he does it so blatantly that uh, we can see it and be shocked and ask ourselves. But listen, he's not. He didn't lose the election because he talked that way. He won the election because he talked that way, given so many people who couldn't bring themselves to vote for Hillary. And that's black and white, and it's male and female. What do you think are the chances that we could get into a nuclear confrontation with North Korea? We are in a nuclear confrontation right at this or, moment. Or Both. that there could be the use of nuclear weapons by one side or the other. If I may just make a point that I make in the book very often. 
I want to say this very soberly. We are using our nuclear weapons. Trump is using his nuclear weapons. It's not just might he use them. He is using them when he makes these tweets and he makes these statements. And on the other side, Kim Jong-un is using his when he talks about his button, big or small. They are both used in the way you point a gun at somebody's head, whether you pull the trigger or not. And they are pointing that gun. They're not just holding it in their shoulder holsters. Okay, now, okay, but he's using he, he's but but those are for that's for those are for for policy uh, objectives. They're that is not leading to the to the deaths of tens of millions of people and to the dis- destruction of of countries. So, I mean, well, I think. By, pardon me. It isn't yet because by a miracle. The dozens of times that the weapons have been used in that way since Nagasaki, none of the times have they actually pulled the trigger for different reasons. For various reasons, the trigger hasn't been pulled. They've been used. Now you're asking, has it always been a bluff? And my answer is, sometimes I think it has been a bluff, and other times it wasn't. Actually, I was asking, how close are we to having the trigger pulled? Close. We are close now. Because Nick, because Trump uh, can back off of positions, that's obvious. Uh, he's done many of them when he often when he says good things, it will come about. But um, we don't even have a wall yet when you come down to it. But I don't think he's totally bluffing. I'll tell you what my greatest nightmare is, if I may. My, which I haven't said this publicly before. If I thought that I was giving this idea to Trump. I wouldn't say it, but I'm sure he has it in his mind already, and it's this. I think when he talks about giving a bloody nose to Kim Jong-un by hitting just the missile sites, say just with non-nuclear weapons, just a very reasonable, limited thing to keep it limited, I he might very well be gambling, and, and he might make that bet, that Kim Jong-un will respond with a truly monstrous response, with a full preemptive attack that will kill hundreds of thousands of people, at least maybe not right away, but as the thing escalates within hours and days. And that means that we are on the verge, on the limit, I think on the of a war that could kill not just thousands, hundreds of thousands to millions of people within a day or a week. And that will be the greatest violence that human history has ever seen. So do you think so do you think that we face the same level of nuclear peril today that we did during the the darkest period of the Cold War or or has that the level of threat diminished somewhat It's it's different in uh, in scale in this respect uh, North Korea does not have the nuclear arsenal of Russia or the Soviet Union or any of the other uh, non uh, the nine nuclear states uh, it has the smallest number. And therefore, with North Korea, the casualties would be measured in millions rather than hundreds of millions or billions. In a Cold War situation where a false alarm can look plausible enough that we really are being attacked, that we've got to preempt and do something about it, a false alarm during that situation is extremely dangerous. And that has happened in the past. We've survived those experiences by a miracle over 70 years, and we could for another 70 years by another miracle, but that's what it would take. It would, it's very unlikely that we'll get through this. It's just not impossible. But if we go to war with North Korea, given from what I was just saying, for example, if there was a false alarm like Hawaii 
during a war with North Korea, then move into the nuclear winter era, the the war with Russia, the war with China, which uh, can actually propel smoke into the stratosphere where it doesn't rain out, where it covers the globe and kills the harvests and starves nearly everyone. That's the doomsday machine. Well, we two doomsday machines. North Korea does not have a doomsday machine, but the two others involved in this dispute, the U.S. and Russia, do have doomsday machines, and the world is living with that. That's what Hawaii uh, reminded us of. Well, on that uh, sobering, if not uh, frightening thought, um, Daniel Ellsberg, I want to thank you for joining us on Skullduggery today. Congrats on the movie, and congrats on the book. Okay, thank you. All right. Thank you. Good to talk. So Mike Daniel Ellsberg, um, you know, uh, a guy who um, changed history um, and um, is a certain kind of personality, um, uh, the sort of whistleblower profile. Um, What did you make of him? Well, first of all, I, you know, I got to say his comments at the end about uh, North Korea and the uh, threat of uh, uh, nuclear warfare is, is pretty sobering. Uh, he's certainly not the only person to say it, but to hear it from a guy with his credentials, his background, and a guy who made the study of nuclear conflict, um, I, you know, that was that was was he was one of the experts uh, on this subject for the United States government and uh, knows more about it than anybody else. And, you know, to hear him say we are close to a nuclear conflict with, with North Korea um, is um, is a little unsettling. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the other thing that, that comes through, um, you know, all through this interview is, you know, he is the the, the kind of radical that he's been for, you know, oh, yeah. decades and decades. And I thought it was interesting that uh, when we, um, you know, wanted to, to, to bring his story to the present and talk about Donald Trump and the parallels between Trump and, um, and Nixon, he didn't really go there. Where did he go? He went straight to Barack Obama. Right. Because, right. Bar- because Barack Obama has done more, uh, had done, his administration had done more uh, leak investigations than all previous administrations combined. So this is a guy who, you know, uh, he's not... Um, not a Democrat, not a Republican. He's just a he's just a progressive and a radical in a lot of ways. And uh, right. uh, it's only people like him, whether you agree with them or not, um, but because they they hold to very um, strong principles, they kind of take action and t- take risk. One other thing uh, that slightly cuts against this was um, his sort of defense of Hillary Clinton yeah. uh, in the last election. So there is a. There is a pragmatic side to him. Yeah, it, it, it is a mixture, exactly, because um, on the one hand, he would not break with Julian Assange, and I, I pressed him on that, and I was a, a little surprised. He was still uh, um, making excuses for Julian Assange. He doesn't fully accept that he uh, was dumping Russian material or certainly wittingly dumping Russian material during the election. Um and um, uh, and his defense of Edward Snowden, um, uh, uncompromising, uh, you know, portrayed him as a hero. He clearly stands by Snowden. He stands by Assange. Um, but at the same time, his disappointment with his liberal liberal friends, uh, who were not willing to support Hillary Clinton, and he understood 
what the outcome of that would be, which is that Donald Trump would be elected. Now, of course, when I asked him whether he voted for Hillary Clinton, he said, well, no, he so didn't have to because he, he lives in California. <laughs> right. So he wrote in Bernie, Bernie Sanders, another old uh, uh, radical. Uh, uh, but fascinating conversation and um, uh, very, very compelling guy. Absolutely. Well, our thanks to this week's guest, Daniel Ellsberg. We'll be back next Friday with another new episode. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. 